Good evening. Welcome to Wednesday evening chapel. We are being transformed. Okay, let's say it all together, or all of us say it together. We are being transformed into Christ's likeness. Uh, one of the ways that that's going to happen this evening, we have a special guest with us. His name is Dr. Jim Bond. He is a general superintendent emeritus for the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, he was one time a member, faculty member and chaplain at the Nazarene Bible College uh, and served as pastor of Springs First Church of the Nazarene uh, a, a couple of years ago. Uh, so would you welcome him? He's, he's, made room, he's made room in his schedule to help us understand the, the life of a relationship with Christ and, uh, and the things that he'll have to say uh, to us and for us this evening will help us in our being transformed into Christ-likeness. Well, thank you, Professor Like and Chaplain. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Wonderful to see you on this uh, warm... <laughs> Colorado evening, wow, cold out there, isn't it? Not quite like Jamaica, uh-uh, like Michigan, more like Michigan. Well, not quite as cold or as much snow as you have in Michigan. Well, I uh, had 45 minutes in the chapel service this morning. This one's just 30 minutes long, so I better move along, hadn't I? Nice to see you here tonight, Mr. President. Should have seen him this morning. He had his family here, daughter-in-law, two grandchildren, little grandboy. How, how old is that grandbaby? About two and a half. Two and a half months. Oh, you mean the little one? The little one. He's about two months. Two months, that's what I thought. Had a little bib on, said, I love Grandpa. <laughs> you gave him that for Christmas, didn't you? Yeah, I bet you did. My friend and a great colleague in ministry and a great servant of God. And I believe in Nazarene Bible College. I believe in its mission. I commend all of you for being here and think you're doing the right thing in preparing yourself for service and ministry for our wonderful Lord through his church. Amen. I'm a third generation Nazarene. Some of you may not be Nazarene and uh, I commend NBC for opening its doors to those outside our denomination. But this is kind of my story my sojourn as a third-generation Nazarene. I tell it very simply, and my text is in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I call this the relationship. No one who has ever had an authentic encounter with Jesus Christ can ever be the same again. That's been verified in my life across more than seven decades now. As just a youngster, I followed my older brother to an altar of prayer in the Church of the Nazarene. My Sunday school teacher, who was my pastor's wife, knelt beside me and said, Jimmy, why don't you just open the door of your heart and invite Jesus to come in? I didn't know that the best thing a five-year-old kid could do was open the door of his heart and invite Jesus in. But I did. And he came into my heart and into my life as a five-year-old boy. My first thoughts about Jesus were warm and wonderful. 
wooing and beckoning. Those, those thoughts were, were compelling to me. I think the first song I ever learned was probably the first song maybe you ever learned in the church. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And we began to sing another little song that I, I resonated with as a child. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Why? Because he first loved me. Amen. Jesus spoke to me when I was a child. Not an audible voice. No, it was a gentle urging. An inner light showing the way. It was a sweet, tender, continuous nudging within to do the right. Theologically, we call that prevenient grace. It's the grace that goes before the moment of salvation. And I believe with all of my heart, God is working in the hearts of every human being in this world tonight in the same way, drawing them to himself. Six and a half billion plus across the face of our world. I marvel when I think of it. That prevenient grace drew me into life's most profound relationship. Think of it, a five-year-old child entering into relationship with the great creator, redeemer God. Many of you are going into ministry, and I want to remind you tonight how important it is to reach the young people. I heard Susie Schellenberger say not long ago that 80% of the believers testify that they became believers before the age of 18. So if the church has a future, we have to reach the young, and that's the right time to reach them when they are open to God and to his call upon their life. Well, by inviting Jesus into my life as a youngster, I moved instantly from an estranged relationship with Jesus caused by our common sinful condition as members of the human race into a glorious, saving relationship with God in Jesus Christ. Was it a dramatic thing that this hardened sinner at the age of five was wonderfully converted? No, but something changed. I fell in love with Jesus. I fell in love not with some vague abstraction about a mysterious God out there or some lovely thought that a human being had concocted in his mind. I fell in love with Jesus, the person, and entered into vital relationship with him. And I can tell you, that Jesus knows how to deal with children because he dealt so tenderly with me as a child. He took me by the hand and said, follow me. And I just began following. In my, my very fumbling kind of adolescent way, I, I began following after Jesus. Sometimes very close, sometimes at distance, sometimes Ever so briefly, I was even lured aside by our subtle, sinister enemy. But he was always there, reaching out his hand, saying, It's okay. Come back. Come on. Keep following me. And so I kept following him. One day in the springtime of my 15th year, he came and said, you've been walking with me virtually all of your life. It's been an enjoyable relationship, but now we're ready to take the relationship to a deeper level. Even though you're living with me in a saving relationship, he said, 
The disposition to want to rule your own life yet remains within you. And this carnal disposition wars against my spirit within you. It seeks to be in control of your life, but I want to be in control. I want to be sovereign. And the quality of our continuing relationship depends upon your decision. I said, Jesus, you know I love you as Savior. I'm willing to do anything, and that's when he asked me about the basketball. I'll take time to tell it, and maybe not have time to do some of the other stuff I was going to do. But I grew up in a very athletic family, two older brothers, fell in love with basketball when I was a kid. Loved basketball, played it day and night. Last serious basketball game that I ever played was playing for Pasadena College, now Point Loma Nazarene University, my alma mater. And uh, we lost in the NAIA tournament in Kansas City, team from, I think, Western Illinois. When the buzzer went off, I realized I just played my last serious basketball game, I was walking from the court, suddenly felt a hand on my shoulder, turning around I saw a man, recognized him immediately, though I'd never seen him in person before. In a sense, he was to basketball what Babe Ruth was to baseball. In fact, they called him Mr. Basketball, and there he stood all six foot ten inches of him, uh, Mr. George Mikan. He said, Jim, uh, I'm with the Lakers. We've been watching you across the last couple of years. We believe you have a great chance to make it in professional basketball. I want to know, are you interested? I said, well, sir, I'm honored, but no, I'm not interested because I'm going to seminary to prepare for ministry in the Church of the Nazarene. Incidentally, I don't believe that's God's will for everybody. I thank God for Christians whose walk measures up to their talk who are involved in professional sports. Right. Have a great platform for witness to our the young people of our generation. Well, I, uh, I've had people over the years say to me, wasn't that a tough thing to do? Just suddenly, instantly there in the middle of the basketball court to say, say no to all the wealth and fame that might want, accrue to one in professional athletics. And my answer is no, it wasn't tough at all. Never second-guessed the decision at all. Why? Because I made a tough decision in the springtime of my 15th year when he came to me one day and said, I want the basketball. I said, Lord, please, not the basketball. He said, I want the basketball. I said, but I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll even be a preacher. But please, not the basketball. He said, I want the basketball. I said, please, not the basketball. It's my life. He said, I know. And I want to be your life. I wrestled for weeks, fairly devout as a young kid. I would kneel beside my bed. And, and every time I'd try to pray between me and God, there came a dumb basketball. Saturday night, Little Nazarene Church in Pampa, Texas. Students from Bethany Nazarene College, now Southern Nazarene University, were there for the weekend. I don't know what they were doing up front. I was sitting over here on the side. And I remember looking into God's face and saying, it's okay. If you want the basketball, you can have the basketball because what I want more than anything else in all this world is for you to be the sovereign Lord of my life. Amen. 
Suddenly the Civil War ceased. <laughs> I mean, almost instantly, my soul was washed with wonderful sense of peace. And there was the sense of being cleansed and being filled with God's Holy Spirit. Came to me a few days later and said, hey, remember the basketball? And I said, sure, I remember the basketball. He said, take the basketball, play basketball, enjoy it. Just don't let it get on the throne anymore because that's for me and for me alone. So, played a lot of basketball during high school years, college years, All-American high school game down Kentucky, played on the South, won the game, All-American high school first team, had scholarship offers, offers from across the country, decided to go to Pasadena College, Nazarene School, prepared there, had to help work my way through like everybody else did, no regrets. It was all for Jesus. The rudder of my will was set. Do you know what I'm talking about? Call it, if you will, entire sanctification. Second definite work of divine grace in the human heart. Where we are cleansed from this inclination to want to rule our own lives. And not left in a vacuum after the cleansing, but then we are filled with the very presence of the living Jesus himself, the blessed Holy Spirit, Amen. who comes to indwell us and enable us to be victorious and to serve him effectively and fruitfully. Little did I realize when I relinquished the basketball that I'd made the second most critically important decision in my life, a decision that I believe is absolutely essential to the relationship. Jesus became more than just a savior. He became the ruling disposition, the dominating concentration, the focal center of my life. Well, I could linger longer there, but this deeper relationship, I think, can be called life in the spirit of Jesus, life under the lordship of Christ. It's the only way to live. <laughs> what a great way to live when he's in control, filling you with his mighty presence and power and love and victory. Well, it hasn't always been easy. I've wrestled with a lot of things over time, and I'll mention maybe three or four here tonight. The things that I, I've had to work through and, and many of my generation have worked through as well. The, the years have taught me that the relationship is of ultimate importance, not the experiences. The experiences are necessary, necessary. Being reborn again, or born again, being reborn, obviously, that is necessary. Being entirely sanctified, that is necessary. These experiences I view as passages required of fully devoted followers by those who, by, by which we enter into the relationship with God and by which we deepen that relationship. I concur thoroughly, believe with all my heart in the traditional understanding of the theology of John Wesley, Church of the Nazarene, that sanctification is both an instantaneous experience and it is a daily, lifelong process. It is both, not either or, it's both and. It's my sense, with regard to the history of the Church of the Nazarene, that in our earlier years we probably emphasized the experience to the neglect of the process. Then we realized our error, so we overcorrected. Pendulum swung clear to the other side, and we began to, began to emphasize the process to the neglect of the experience.
Well, I think this is the time, and I've given some time and some effort to this myself, where we endeavor to strike a healthy biblical balance and acknowledge that both the experience of entire sanctification and the process of progressive sanctification are absolutely essential to the relationship. Number two, and I have nine points to my message tonight. I don't know if I'm going to get through them or not. Because i got about nine minutes left, don't I? <laughs> Second thing is this. I, I've come to believe that the relationship is all about Jesus. Amen. It's all about living in Him and living for Him and living like Him through His indwelling Spirit. I endeavor every day to worship Him as God, Creator, Redeemer, God. In the morning, I try to say, I love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So help me today to think Jesus in all the contexts where I live and move. Help me to talk Jesus. Why, this is the greatest gift I have in this world. I ought to be talking about Jesus all the time with everyone. And above everything else, through your indwelling spirit, help me to live like Jesus. Amen. Now, I think, and I don't have time to really deal with this, that holiness in its very essence is Christological. Christ is at the center of the holiness message. And I, I've come to believe that for me personally, the most profound and helpful of the several terms used to describe the experience of entire sanctification, the one I like the most is Christ-likeness. Holiness is Christ-likeness. Jesus came not only to redeem us, he came to live before us the model that God wants us to be like. I, I like that term because obviously it's far-reaching in its theological implications, but I think it's our most winsome and engaging term. Profound, but very simple, and the one which resonates with postmoderns. So I like to speak of holiness as Christ-likeness. Number three. The relationship is not about perfectionism. Many of us, in my error, wrestled with this issue. For years, I, I think I have to confess that I was held captive and inwardly driven by the compelling notion that moral and spiritual perfection can and should be attained in this life. And so for me it became an obsessive striving and the end result was frustration and defeat. And then one day Jesus came and said, hey, relax. You're never going to be perfect. I'm the only perfect one in this relationship. So keep your eyes on me and I'll keep working to perfect you in my own image, shaping you more and more every day. Wow, I, I brought my little, here it is. Well, maybe this is yours, I'll take it. That's what that's all about. We're being shaped into what? Into his image, into the very image of God made known to us in Jesus Christ. Transformed. Transformation, yes. That's what it's all about, being transformed every day more and more into the likeness of God made known to us in Jesus Christ. Christians are not cast into mold, someone said. They're chiseled out like statues. We're not cookie-cutter Christians, you know. We're all unique and different. So I'm a person God is making 
like a statue God is shaping. God is molding me, correcting God's intent on my perfecting. So he's the great chiseler, and I'm the stone. And it's hard work sometime to shape me. And he's not through with me yet by a long shot. He's still shaping me more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Well, let me think. This one might be helpful. The relationship is not about legalism. Seeking God's approval through living by rules. Says a young man striving to live a holy life. I had to work through the debilitating notion that to be holy essentially meant living by a list of prohibitions. And you could almost list the bad ones on ten fingers. And if you didn't do any of those things, you were living a holy life. Very simplistic and very wrong. I believe it is prudent, and I would not want to leave this subject without telling you that I think it is prudent that you and I understand how important it is to seek the collective wisdom of the church who across generations and centuries has endeavored to live the Christian life, the holy life. I like the fact that we went away from what we call general rules and special rules in the manual and now we call it the covenant of Christian conduct which I interpret to mean here are guidelines that those seeking to be holy should be following after with all of their heart. Well, Jesus came to me one day and said, Jim, you have to learn to resist evil if you're going to be holy in this kind of a world. But evil is sometimes very subtle, not easily and immediately recognizable. And this means that decision-making about right and wrong can be very difficult in this kind of world in which we live. It's like we've been inundated with a tidal wave of evil. So you can't make enough rules to send young people out in the world and say, live by these rules, you're going to live a holy life. What we have to do, and I think what he said to me is, follow me and I will teach you daily by helping you to learn to make value judgments between good and evil, between good and half good, between half good and great. And I want to help you so that ultimately you learn how to make great moral decisions in living a holy life in this world. And he said, always remember that the relationship, though, is not based on legalistic adherence to certain rules. It is based on grace. And he didn't stop there. He said, let me remind you that the more you get involved in doing good to others, the less you'll be distracted by the temptations to sin. I want you to be known, he said to me very tenderly one day, not so much by what you don't do, as by what you do.